Welcome back to AD 79, Year of Vesuvius, Episode 26, Gnaeus Julius Agricola. It's July and summer's well and truly here, and the time is right for fighting in the heath. In general, the past decade had not seen a whole lot of warfare. Vespasian himself had served in the army overseas three times, as a young officer for a year, as a general in Britain for five years, a general again in Judea for another three years. These, not to mention the fight for Rome, the so-called Year of Four Emperors, in which unpleasantness he lost his brother to followers of Vitellius and nearly lost his second son Domitian as well. We may guess that Vespasian at least had no great stomach for the enterprise. They say he was not big on gladiatorial shows. Titus, who comes off in literature as a more bloodthirsty kind of fellow, may have been more open to the Roman legions flexing their muscles. And if we're going to be coldly pragmatic about the matter, any new ruler has to make his mark quickly if the world is going to take him seriously. Which is not to say that Titus pushed the summer of 79 campaign in Britain, but he didn't do anything to stop it either. Fighting between Romans and Britons had been going on and off for years. First, with the arrival in Britain of Julius Caesar, who came, who saw, who fought, who left. That in 55 BC. The following year, he came back and stayed rather longer, settling in for the duration. The subsequent events elsewhere in subsequent decades meant Rome took its eye off the ball, and accordingly, Claudius felt the need to send an army in to confirm who was boss. And so there was Vespasian, in expanding Roman influence west into Cornwall and offshore to the Isle of Wight, as other forces were pushing the Roman lines further north. Status remained quo for some years, with Romans building some defensive works in the mid-fifties, exploiting this time of peace just in case of war. How odd to be a Briton at this time, watching these efficient alien people tramping into land not their own, alternating between nice and nasty. For years, the Britons had heard disturbing stories from cousins in Gaul. To be fair, though, the invaders did bring along some pretty nifty improvements to the material world. They had a big thing for rectangles, those Romans. You don't see a lot of rectangles in nature nor in the wattle and daub shelters across the island. But once you do see them, say, in the camps and cities that seem to spring up overnight when Romans show up, well, you can see how they made it work. Then there was the clothing and metalwork and the martial discipline. All of that was impressive. And the sheer confidence, not to say arrogance, to march into this island in the first place. It was all quite breathtaking. So it's no wonder that realists among the Britons, especially those with long-standing distrust of neighboring fellow Britons, were happy to take up the option of alliance, or at least terms, with Rome. There was friction. Impossible for there not to be. We are, after all, talking about an invasion, and the natural reaction, that is to say resistance, was going to be met with even greater repression. 
Rome had carrots as well as sticks, and depending on who was in charge at the moment on either side, either the vegetable or the wood was going to be brought to bear. Anyway, not much to write home about until A.D. 60, at which time a new governor decided that Wales and its troublesome druids must be eliminated. The expedition was put on hold when word came from the southeast of Boudicca's rebellion. Grim at times, predictably and avoidable, if the powers that were on the ground had had an ounce of common sense. But they didn't, and as a result, thousands of lives were lost and justice not served. The fighting itself, begun with a sneak terror attack, to which the Romans, under legion commander C. Petelius Cerealis, son-in-law of Vespasian, failed badly in a hopeless counterattack. Also present for his first stint in Britain was Gnaeus Julius Agricola as a staff officer, to whom no blame attached. Who he? How do we know? And why do we care? Agricola, born in Gallia Narbonensis, so Gaulish by ancestry, to a first-generation senatorial family. The cognomen, Agricola, despite the agricultural nature of it, possibly a whim of the father who had written a treatise on viticulture. The father should have stuck to agronomy rather than go into politics. He was, sad to say, executed by Caligula for failing to prosecute someone Caligula did not like. The fatherless son is the subject of a laudatory biography by his son-in-law, the historian Tacitus, beginning work on his historian's chops. The book's subject is one of the few people about whom Tacitus has much nice to say. Tacitus would later say that Vespasian improved as an emperor, which, coming from him, was high praise indeed. In AD 58, Agricola was serving as a military tribune under Suetonius Paulinus in Britain, and so was there for Boudicca's rebellion. Exactly what role he played in that affair is undescribed, Tacitus displaying an unseemly coyness on behalf of his relative. Most annoying. Possibly he was attached to the Second Augusta Legion, Vespasian's old command. In any event, rebellion was squelt. Boudicca took her own life. Failed modern generals don't do that sort of thing, probably rightly so. And Rome saw the need for a lighter touch in dealing with the savage Britons. Agricola likely, at the very least, brushed shoulders with Flavian's son-in-law, Petilius Cerealis, and in the immediate aftermath, Titus himself, named as a tribune that year. The fighting in Britain over, Agricola went home and stayed home for ten years, doing the usual magistrative jobs expected of a capable Roman bureaucrat. He married, had a daughter, later to marry his biographer Tacitus. Agricola continued his steady career rise until A.D. 69, a year of personal tragedy. This recall was the so-called Year of Four Emperors, when the throne was vacated by Nero's suicide and became the object of desire of three ambitious provincial governors, Galba, Otho, Vitellius, and finally Vespasian, who may or may not have really wanted it, but who got it and made it work. 
Otho killed Galba and was then challenged by Vitellius. Partisans of Otho, incidentally, overran the estate belonging to Agricola's widowed mother, Tacitus again. Otho's fleet, while cruising idly about, cruelly ravaged in Tenelii, a district of Liguria. His mother, who was living here on her own estate, was murdered. The estate itself and a large part of her patrimony were plundered. This was indeed the occasion of the crime. Agricola, who instantly set out to discharge the duties of affection. Exact dates are lacking, so we make educated guesses. When exactly did Otho's sailors commit this crime? Otho served January 15th to April 16th of 69. The fleet would have been at sea no sooner than March. Say the attack came in April. Vitellius came to power on April 19th. So probably Agricola would not have had too much time to offer services to Vitellius, being busy with duties of affection. The question becomes, when did Vespasian become a known contender for replacing Vitellius? Mucianus, a governor in Syria, began to goad the future emperor as early as May, encouraged in no small part by Queen Berenice and by Vespasian's son Titus. Vespasian, perhaps dithering, perhaps not, there are cases to be made for both points of view, did not announce his hat in the ring until July. April, May, June, July. The now orphaned Agricola had had four months to cope with his grief and to think about the future, his own and Rome's. What Tacitus has to say is that Agricola was overtaken by the tidings that Vespasian was aiming at the throne. He at once joined his party. No word that he did any fighting on the new boss's behalf. Tacitus glosses over the bloody war entirely and goes on to the initial governance of Rome and environs. Vespasian's early policy and the government of Rome were directed by Mucianus, for Domitian was a mere youth, and from his father's elevation sought only the opportunities of indulgence. This, by the way, is only half the story, if that, but let it pass for now. We'll have more to say about Domitian in later episodes. Back to Agricola. Agricola, having been sent by Mucianus to conduct a levy of troops, and having done his work with integrity and energy, was appointed to commander of the 20th Legion. This would be the 20th Valeria Victrix, a Roman legion in Britain, whose loyalty might have been wavering, but whose members fell into line once Agricola was put in charge. Now he, along with that other veteran of Britain, Flavian son-in-law Petilius Curialis, went to war with the Brigantes, coming off better than he had with Boudicca. Back to Rome in AD 73, and back to climbing the greasy pole. Loyalty and competence stood him well. By AD 77, Agricola was so well regarded, not to say trusted, that Vespasian had him replace son-in-law Petelius Cerealis as governor of Britain. The handoff took place in midsummer. Agricola stepped off the boat only to learn that the Ordovices tribe in Wales had been acting up and needed some putting down. 
specifically the Ordovices had had, Tacitus speaking, destroyed nearly the whole of a squadron of Allied cavalry quartered in their territory. Such a beginning raised the hopes of the country, and all who wished for war approved the precedent and anxiously watched the temper of the new governor. Note, by the way, that the attack was against allies, alum agentum. Britons, presumably, they the ones who were hit. What to do? A wise invading general, having converted some of the locals, will always want to prove that he's got their back. And so it was with Agricola. As the season was winding down, and against the advice of his staff, he collected a force of veterans and a small body of auxiliaries, and be again non-Romans. Then, as the Ordovices would not venture to descend into the plain, he put himself in front of the ranks to inspire all with the same courage against a common danger, and led his troops up a hill. The tribe was all but exterminated. Tacitus makes much, perhaps too much, of this particular victory, which from a purely military standpoint was probably not all that much. But it did show the temperament of the new governor. Don't tread on Romans or friends of the Romans. Still, the battlefield was a reminder that, as a whole, Britain was only half civilized. The Romans didn't like to do things by halves. So once Agricola had put down the Ordvice in their place, he pushed on with another short campaign involving a combined force of local allies and Roman regulars, again working on building common bonds, and met on the island of Mona. And, Tacitus points out, he did not hog the limelight or credit, another wise move for military commanders. So, another victory, AD 77, was drawing to a close, and Agricola held out the Roman carrot. Tacitus again. With thorough insight into the feelings of his province, and taught also by the experience of others that little is gained by conquest if followed by oppression, he determined to root out the causes of war. He lightened the exaction of corn and tribute by an equal distribution of the burden, while he got rid of those contrivances for gain which were more intolerable than the tribute itself, basely cutting out rapacious middlemen of various sorts. By the repression of these abuses in his very first year in office, Agricola restored to peace its good name, when, from either the indifference or the harshness of his predecessors, it had come to be as much dreaded as war. Not that Agricola had given up on war. We are now in 8078, and we read that when summer came, assembling his forces, he continually showed himself in the ranks, praised good discipline, and kept the stragglers in order. He would himself choose the position of the camp, himself explore the estuaries and forests. Meanwhile, he would allow the enemy no rest, laying waste his territory with sudden incursions and having sufficiently alarmed them, would then, by forbearance, display the allurements of peace. In consequence, many states, which up to that time had been independent, gave hostages and laid aside their animosities. Garrisons and forts were established among them with a skill and diligence with which no newly acquired part of Britain had before been treated. 
We are now in early AD 79 and learn that the winter passed without disturbance and was employed in salutary measures. For to accustom to rest and repose through the charms of luxury, a population scattered and barbarous and therefore inclined to war, Agricola gave private encouragement and public aid to the building of temples, courts of justice, and dwelling houses, praising the energetic and reproving the indolent. Thus an honorable rivalry took place of compulsion. He, likewise, provided a liberal education for the sons of the chiefs, and showed such a preference for the natural powers of the Britons over the industry of the Gauls, that they who lately disdained the tongue of Rome now coveted its eloquence. Hence, too, a liking sprang up for our style of dress, and the toga became fashionable. Was this a good thing? You might well think so. But count on Tacitus for a dark spin. Step by step they were led to things which disposed to vice. The lounge, the bath, the eloquent banquet, all this in their ignorance they called civilization, when it was but a part of their servitude. Rousseau and his romantic dreams of noble savagery had nothing on Tacitus. So we are now up to date, AD 79, and to repeat, summer's here and the time is right for fighting, this time on the heath. Agricola led his men north to biff the lowland Scots into civilized servitude. Ultimately he failed. Scots are tough and the heath did not yield a whole lot that the Romans found worth the candle. The border, or what the Romans imagined was a border, got pushed back, but the people were not tamed. I like to think that a few of my own Scottish ancestors were among them, and perhaps they were. Agricola would have more luck the following year among the Romanizing Britons. AD 80 would be a year of bad weather, bad for battle. The best he could manage was to claim the southern bank of the River Tay, and from time to time to cast a longing eye towards Ireland, another contentious lot who would not be moved. Agricola would be recalled in later years by Domitian, honored for his service, not enough to satisfy his son-in-law Tacitus, but Tacitus was a hard man to humor, and besides, really hated Domitian. Next time, a break from the old cold country and down to the Bay of Naples, where Titus was making the rounds as the new emperor, greeting old friends and reassuring new supporters that nothing but good was going to come from his rule. Well, we all have our own little plans and hopes and dreams. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and remember the tip jar is always open for business.